we are kicking off a new series. Um, after we have uh, completed our series called Journey Through the Bible, and I hope that was a uh, blessing to you to tie the biblical storyline together from uh, beginning to end, and I hope it will bear fruit for you as you continue to read and study the Bible to help you as you study different particular books of the Bible to kind of help you understand where it all fits into the overarching story of what God is doing in the world from creation to new creation. Uh, And this morning we're going to start a brief series um, called Marks of a Healthy Church. Marks of a Healthy Church. And some of these are points that are going to be taken from a book that the deacons and I have been reading called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. We're not going to do all nine, but we're going to do um, some that I I think are especially important. Uh, But before we even begin of talking about marks of a healthy church, what we have to ask ourselves is what is the church? What what is it? What is is it that we're actually talking about so that we can know then what we are to do and to be as a church? And, And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And so... Uh, Before we begin, uh, let's join our hearts together in prayer one more time as we seek the Lord for a blessing this morning. Father, I just thank you now for this moment, this opportunity to minister your word. I pray that you would guard my tongue from error. I pray that your spirit would be present in our midst to teach us, to guide us, to sanctify us, God, to correct us, Lord, where we are in error in our thinking, to embolden us in our lives of faith to you, to sanctify us, to make us more pure and holy, Lord, than we were when we walked in, to teach us this morning what it means to be your saved, redeemed, chosen people. Bless us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. That's going to be one of the first passages we look at this morning, Matthew chapter 16. And so again, as I said, we do want to ask the question, what is the church? If you read, if you read especially the New Testament, you'll find the word church some 100 plus times. But our question is, what does the Bible actually mean by the word church? What does it actually mean? Does it, does it mean what we typically understand it to mean or does it mean something more something different and what practical significance does our understanding of the church have for our lives i believe it has a lot of practical significance so that's what i want to talk about this morning what is the church and so now if you're able and willing i invite you to stand in honor of the reading of god's word from matthew chapter 16 Beginning in verse 13. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, 
Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The word of God. You may be seated. I want to see three truths concerning the church from uh, various texts this morning, including this one. Truth number one is that the church is God's people. The church is God's people. Number two is that the church is universal. And number three is that the church is local. The church is local. So again, the church is God's people, the church is universal, and the church is local. First, the church is God's people. So the first thing we need to do to understand church, church is to understand what the word itself means. So um, perhaps most of you know that the New Testament was written uh, in a language called Koine Greek. And uh, there's a word, a Greek word, that, underli- that underlies most of the translations in, your, in our English Bibles of the word church. And that underlying Greek word is the word ekklesia. And so uh, when we read Matthew and Luke and Acts and Paul, Paul's letters and John, as they wrote the New Testament in the Greek language, Uh, when they refer to the church, they use the word in Greek, ekklesia. And that word, at its most basic definition, simply means an assembly or a group of people that were gathered together for a specific purpose. Okay, An assembly or a group or gathering of people uh, who have come together for a specific purpose. And in some cases, that's, that's really all that the word means. For example... In Acts chapter 19, perhaps you remember, Paul was preaching in Ephesus. And so many people in Ephesus were being converted that it was putting the the silversmiths and the craftsmen out of business. Because they made idols for the worship of the pagan Greek gods. And so many people were being converted that it was running them out of business. Because once they stopped, when they started worshiping Jesus, the, the true God, they stopped worshiping the false pagan gods. And it was putting them out of business. And so these business people started a riot or a mob that ended up gathering at the theater within the city of Ephesus. And that, and that gathering is actually referred to as an ecclesia or an assembly. But the vast majority of the uses of the New Testament refer to a group of Christians. Most of the time living in a specific uh, place. And it's clear uh, by the passages that it refers to those, to, to, the, to the gathering of people in that local community who have been saved, who have been born again, who have repented of their sins and chosen to follow Christ and have followed him in obedience through baptism, publicly proclaiming that they now worship the one and true living God in Jesus Christ as risen from the dead. And so... Um, and so that's the vast majority of uses of the word ecclesia in the New Testament. And therefore, most of, the, most of the references in the Bible that when you read the word church are referring to that. In our passage that we just read in Matthew 16, it's, it's one of the first references or first uses of that word in the entire New Testament. And it's interesting there that it says, Jesus says specifically, he says, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so Jesus has an understanding then of what? 
of a group of people, right? A gathering of people who what? Who belong to him. Right? So that's what, so in essence, that's what the church is. It's the group of people who belong to him. Who can say of Christ, I am his and he is mine. I am his, I am his uh, sheep and he is my shepherd. I am his, I, he is my king and I am a citizen of his kingdom. To be part of the church in the, in the, in the most simplest sense is to belong to Christ. And it's to be part of the community of all those who belong to Christ. It is to be his. Because Jesus said it is his church. I will build my church, he says. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Indeed, it is, it is all throughout the New Testament that it is Christ who secures for himself a people. Through his sinless life, through his, through his atoning death on the cross, paying the penalty for sin. Through his death-conquering resurrection from the dead, giving us, uh, showing that he had indeed paid the penalty for sin. Therefore, if we trust in him... And find forgiveness of our sins through him. The penalty of death no longer holds sway in our lives. That is just as he rose from the dead. We too will rise from the dead. (coughs) And through his work. He has purchased the Bible says a people for himself. Revelation 5.9. Says they sang a new song saying. Worthy are you. To take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. You see there was a people. Whom Christ purchased. He ransomed them. He purchased them by his blood to be his people. That's what it means to be in the church. Is to be among those for who, who have been ransomed by Christ. From among every nation, tribe, language, and people. In John six thirty seven, Jesus speaks of it in this way. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So there is a people whom God the Father has given his son, and they are his people. And Christ has come for this purpose, not to do his will, but to do the will of the one who sent him. Namely, that he should secure for himself this people that God has given him. And that he would lose not a single one of them, but raise them all up on the last day. And so this is the church. This is Christ's people. It is the people who belong to Christ. It in a familial covenant relationship. And so, to be clear, it is true that everyone belongs to God in the ver- by virtue of God being creator and owner of all things. But when we say church, we really mean something different, don't we? That is, not everyone belongs to the church, but only those who have been ransomed by Christ's blood. Only those who have had the penalty for their sin paid by his sacrifice, who have united with him through faith. Those whom the Father has given the Son and whom Christ has came to secure, of, of, a, of whom he will not lose a single one. The church is, those, is composed of those who have the, the grace and faith to believe in Christ, to put all their hope and trust in him and to love him better than life and to, and to be part of his bride, his covenant family who seek him, who follow him and who eagerly await for him to come back 
for them. That is the church. It is God's people. It is the congregation, the assembly of the Lord. That is the church that Christ came for. And that is the, the gathering of people whom Christ said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I think when we understand the church in this light, I think we maybe begin to see how, how lightly we often take participation in the church. That is, in Christ's people. When, if you think about it, it is the greatest conceivable reality that there is. That you, in a special, familial, covenantal sense, can have relationship with Almighty God. That you can belong to Him. That you can know Him. That you can have the promised eternal life. That's why nobody wants to die, because deep down we know we were made to live forever. And Christ promises eternal life because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's why Christ came to forgive us of our sin. So that we can be redeemed, purchased from the penalty of our sin. And have eternal life to belong to God. We are destined for utter glory, total glorification. We are destined for the inability to sin, for the privilege to stand in the presence of Almighty God forever. If you belong to Him, if you are part of the church, the people of God, dear friends, do you belong to Him? Do you know Him? There is no higher privilege and calling than knowing and being part of God's people. So number one, the church is God's people. Number two, the church is universal. The church is universal. And so when we talk about this, we're talking about two specific aspects or ways to look and understand the church, and and really two specific ways that the term is used in the New Testament. Uh, and, and those two senses are that there is both a universal church and there is both a local church. And we can learn a lot about understanding both um, and, and about what our responsibilities and privileges are as the people of God. So first we're going to talk about what the church universal means. The universal church refers to all of God's people at all times and in all places who are part of God's forgiven, redeemed, covenant people. And the Bible uses the word church specifically in this connection, especially, for example, in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, there is a section there where Paul is uh, praying. He's telling the Ephesian Ephesian church uh, a number of things that he is praying for them to know. There are certain things that he wants them to know and understand and believe. And one of those things begins in verse 19 in Ephesians 1. It says, he wants them to know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, that's God's power, toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so we know from the context of this passage that he's talking about the church as it is in its universal scope. Because think about what he's talking about. He's talking about Christ who what? Who has been given power and authority above every other power and authority that exists. He is Jesus Christ by virtue of uh, being given it by God the Father. Is the supreme being of the universe over all powers and authorities and angels and rulers and demons. Over all things. He has been given the name, the Bible says, that is above every name. Not only in this age, Paul says, but also in the age to come. That is, Jesus Christ is forever the supreme king over all. And then he says specifically that he had put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. And so clearly in the context, he's not just talking about Jesus is head of just a specific local church. He's head over the church. Over all the church. He is the head, the authority, the ruler over all people who have ever trusted in him and hoped in him. Of all times, in all places, everywhere. So he's clearly talking about the, the universal church over all people who belong to him. Paul also references the universal church a couple chapters later in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to everyone, for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And so again, in this passage as well, Paul is referring to the church as that timeless, full, complete entity. Uh, that has been purchased by Christ's work of salvation. And it's astounding, if, if this passage is astounding if you think about it, because Paul speaks of, of the work of Christ as a mystery. That's his, that's, that's his language. It says the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. What was the plan of the mystery? Well, in one sense, it was the church. It was the church. That's what Paul is saying. He says, so that in the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is, and in the context of Ephesians, what Paul's talking about is this, is that, you know, the Jews thought they had, they had, and they did, they had unique access to God. They had the promises. But what Paul is saying is that in the heart of God all along, the eternal, mysterious plan of God was to save not just Jews, but all people. How? Through the church. Through the church. That is that all, not just Jews, but all from every nation, tribe, and tongue who would call on him, who would turn from their sins, who would follow Christ with their lives and with their hearts. And what it was is it was this divine mystery that that Paul says was made known and was revealed in Christ. And specifically, he says, through the church, he says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Think about what Paul is saying. Basically, what he's saying is this. He's saying that 
this great mystery, this great plan of salvation that God has orchestrated all of human history to bring about was so unbelievable and it was so incredible and it was so unsearchably wise that God did it this way to amaze the angels. So that when the plan was finally unveiled in the person of Jesus Christ, even the angels would step back and say, unbelievable, unbelievable. Look what God has done. Saving a people, the church from all nations, tribes, and languages. Forgiving sinners. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's what the church is. So in Christ, we are the church universal. We are part of one body who through all times and all places have believed in God's promises and trusted in God's word. And that's what the author of Hebrews speaks of in Hebrews 12 there, verse 22. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, assembly there being, being ecclesia or church, assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so, we are the assembly of the firstborn. The firstborn of enrolled in heaven, he says. that, And right before that, and right before Hebrews chapter 12, of course, is Hebrews chapter 11, where the writer is talking about the great saints of, the, of old, the whole of faith, as we sometimes call it, Abraham and Moses and David. And so what the author of Hebrews is clearly is saying is this. He talks about... You know, he talks about the great cloud of witnesses that go before us. And so what he is doing is he's clearly locating us as Christians who are alive today among the universal church. That is, we are of one body with all those who have gone before us. We are, Paul says that we are by faith children of Abraham. We stand on their shoulders we stand in the same family, and one day we shall... Remember that astounding thing Jesus said, that one day in the kingdom of God, we shall all recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. One family through the ages of all who have set their hope on God. John in Revelation saw the universal church in Revelation chapter 9. He's, I mean, chapter 7. He said, after this... I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so everyone who wears the white robe of Christ, everyone who has been forgiven of their sin and covered in his righteousness, everyone who can cry out in joy from his heart that salvation belongs to the Lamb. With these, we are one body, one people, one eternal family 
of God. And that's the wonder of the universal church, that we as followers of Christ are indestructibly united in Christ with every other follower of Jesus Christ. We are a family. That's what we learn from the universal church. That me- what it means is that in Christ we have been given a new identity, a new family, a new, a new loyalty, a new allegiance. That, 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 super, uh, that uh, supersedes all other and every other allegiance, every other loyalty, every other family, because we are in the family of God. And so that's why, that's why we could hop on a plane right now and fly overseas and worship with uh, our brothers in Africa and in Asia and Europe and South America and Central America and Australia. Though we have little in common otherwise, we have everything in common because we are co-heirs of Christ. Because we've been washed by the same blood. Because we share the same God and the same Savior and the same family. And we will live together forever worshiping the same God in righteousness and in holiness. We belong eternally together. And so what this does is it it changes the way we think about the world. And it changes the way we look at other people. Because we live in an age that is just so... so fiercely divided and in an age of identity politics where we're just so quick to land in this camp or land in this camp or identify with this party or identify with this party. But if you must be known as one thing, don't be known as a Democrat or Republican, but be known as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ. If everything else has to go, do not lose your identity in Christ because if you lose that, you've lost everything. Democrats and Republicans will not exist in a thousand years, but the kingdom of God will remain forever. And we can love people of all nations, tribes, and tongues because if we're in Christ, we are one people. In Him forever. It gives us a new allegiance, a new family, a new thing that stands ultimate. Whereas, where if I must be known as anything, if I must be known as anything, let it be this. Let me be known as a follower of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but we also stand... In solidarity with all those who have gone before us. We can read to this day the writings of men like Athanasius and Augustine, Calvin and Luther, Spurgeon and Edwards. And and we can be built up by the faith of these brothers and sisters who have long preceded us. But hey, we're still one family. And we shall one day see them and converse with them and fellowship with them. As one eternal family in the Lord, we will join them on that blessed shore and be blessed by their words today, knowing we are part of the same family. If we are in Christ, we are the church universal. We are the family of God that abides forever. So number one, the church is God's people. Number two, the church is universal. And finally, number three, the church is local. The church is local. So we said that there are two ways we could think about the church. One is the universal, and it is just glorious to contemplate how in Christ we are part of the universal church. But the second and also glorious way to think about the church is to understand that the church is not just universal, but the church is local. In fact, if you did a word study and searched 
you would find that the majority, the vast majority, in fact, of the times that the word ecclesia for church is used in the New Testament, it refers to local congregations of believers gathered together at a particular place in a particular time, living life together for the sake of Jesus Christ. In fact, we could just, I'll read you just a few passages that speak to this uh, from the book of Acts, Acts 8.1. It says, Saul approved of his execution, that is, of the execution of Stephen. And it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So note, note there, persecution rose against the church in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so we have the church that was located in Judea and Galilee and Samaria. Okay, Acts 13.1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, uh, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaea, and a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And finally, Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. So clearly there, oh, I didn't mean to copy my little comment in there. That's not scripture. That's not scripture. But, but that's my comment. Sorry. Um, clearly, as you can see, that's not scripture, is... Um, is that it was a local church in a specific city. So obviously they're not point, you can't appoint elders in the universal church, but you can appoint elders in local churches. And that's what it's talking about. With prayer and fast that they committed them to the Lord in whom they have believed. And so we can multiply these examples over and over. The vast majority of the uses of that of Ecclesia in the New Testament refer to local churches. And what we learn then, what it, we learn then that, that a, a, a key aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to belong to the church universal means that we also must belong to the church local. That's how it works. Now, the New Testament doesn't verbatim say, thou shalt be in church. But it does say, do not neglect the meeting together. Hebrews chapter 10, that's a command. Do not neglect the meeting together. But nevertheless, the point is, is that the whole New Testament assumes assumes that to be a believer means that you are also part of the community of believers. By definition, if you are a believer, you are now part of the community of believers who are gathered together at a specific place and at a specific time. And the New Testament clearly assumes that in all the language that it uses concerning the church, that we all together are to share our life and our faith together as co-laborers and co-partakers of the kingdom of God. Read the book of Acts. You know, if you've never done this, maybe try it. Read the book of Acts carefully and ask yourselves, and ask yourselves what the book of Acts teaches about how we're supposed to live our lives out as Christians. And what you will see is this, that the, that the idea of a believer who is not also part of, a, of sharing their life together in familial relationship with other believers is a totally foreign idea to the New Testament. If, if someone came to the Apostle Paul and said, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church, he'd be like, excuse me? What'd you say? 
And it, I mean, it's not that he, it, it would be literally he couldn't conceive of it. Because to be a follower of Christ means to also, to love Jesus means to love Jesus' people. Think of all the one another commands in the Bible. How can you one another yourself? You can't. It's impossible. In other words, you can't obey Christ without opening your life to other people, without meeting together with other people, without praying together with other people, without sharing your, your, your life with other people. Take, take in Acts chapter 2 how it describes the life of early Christians in Acts chapter 2. It says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together. And they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what we see then is to be part of the universal church means to be part of the local church. It has to be. It has to be or you can't obey Christ's commands. Christ's, Christ's preeminent command in the book of John, Jesus said, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. How? As I have loved you. How can we love the 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 sheer minimum of loving other people is what? Is showing up. Is being together. Is being in one another's lives. Is being there when they need you. Is praying together. Is opening your tables together. It's the bare minimum. And so to be part of the universal church means, demands to be part of the local church. Why? Because we... Because we are one body in Christ. Jesus said, this is, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples. By your love for one another. <clears throat> and so, this is the ministry of the local church. This is what it means. We're working, we're, we're, we're sharing our resources together. We're laughing together. We're crying together. We're studying scripture together. We're meeting needs together. We're working together to reach others with the good news of Christ so that they too might know the joys of living for Christ together with his people. You see, the local church is where the rubber meets the road because the only, it, is in, it is only in the local church that we can express our faith in Christ through love for God and through love for others, right? Remember what James said? He said, faith without works is dead, right? He says, you show, you show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, I can say that I love God all I want, but unless I actually do tangible acts of love for other people, then my, there's no way I can actually show my faith. And he says, Faith that is not showed, how can, we, how can we believe it? It's where the rubber meets the road is in the local church where the hard work of loving other sinners 
like you and like me, actually has to happen. It's where our faith is actually expressed. It's where our faith is actually shown. It's where our faith is actually tested. The hard work of loving other people. Have you ever had a situation in life and you kind of thought to yourself, man, this would be a lot easier if people weren't involved? (laughs) Ever thought that before? Well, for somehow, we, some, somehow uh, just, it's a great tragedy, but many people have mis- uh, imbibed some uh, false view that in the church, that in the church, everything should be happy-go-lucky and you're never going to get your feelings hurt. Why do you think over and over Jesus told his followers and the Apostle Paul wrote in his letters to the churches to love and forgive one another? He's writing, not, he's writing not to people out there. He's writing to Christians. Why is he writing that to them? Because in the church, you've got to do the hard work of loving one another. Because even though we're saved, we're not fully sanctified. Can I get a witness? <laughs> but that's the glory of it, isn't it? That's the glory of it, isn't it? Jesus Christ commands you to love one another out as he has loved you. And guess what? He's going to put someone in your life to teach you how to do it. But guess what? That's where, the mo- that's where the rubber meets the road. But that's the glory of it because when you, that's when you can feel Christ working in you and changing you when he's making you a more loving person than you knew you were, were before, a more patient person, a more kind and gentle person. That's where the power of Christ is actually put on display. And that's when the lost onlooking world says, I don't know what's going on in there, but they act a little different because they actually love one another in there. That's what it's in the local church where the rubber meets the road of our faith. And it is there, it's there where our faith is lived out, where people are actually loved, prayers are actually prayed, resources are actually given, tears are actually shed. And our faith in Christ is grown and matured, and God's glory is put on display through it, through the church. Let your good deeds, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what we see this morning is that the church is God's people. The church is universal. The church is local. And so the question again is just very simple. Are you in? Are you in the church universal? And if you are, Are you in the church local? Has the rubber met the road in your faith? And are you living a life of sacrificial obedience and self-giving for the glory of God and for the good of others? And if not, today, you can commit and ask God for grace and strength. Say, God, help me dig in and open my life to others and live the life that you have called me to for your glory. And if you don't know Christ, you can know him today. He has lived. He has died. He has risen from the dead. He's coming back. And if we turn from our sins and believe that he is indeed who he said he was, that in him is our only hope, but there is more than enough hope to go around in him. And if we trust in him and follow him and turn from our sins, we will be forgiven of all of our sin by God's grace, welcomed into God's forever family, changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and guaranteed a spot in that 
age to come where we will worship with all of God's people together. If you don't know him, turn to Christ today. Trust in him. Follow him. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for today.